Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners, as I always do when I come on these podcasts. Without you, there would be no reason, there'd be no purpose for me doing this. And I certainly appreciate every one of you out there who listens worldwide um, to our authors. And today, joining me from the San Francisco Bay Area is Catherine Namura. And Catherine is the co-author with Dan Sullivan, the strategic coach, on a book called The Laws of Lifetime Growth, Always Make Your Future Bigger Than Your Past. Uh, Catherine, good day to you. How are you? Hi, Greg. I'm doing great. Thank great. you. It's good to have you on this podcast for Inside Personal Growth. And I was just reflecting with Catherine. This actually is the expanded second edition of the book. This is a Barrett Kohler book. Um, I did an interview with Catherine, which was podcast 40, which is going to probably go back about eight years ago um, for the original version of this book. So we're going to get in with Catherine as to really what has changed and why the new revised edition uh, since 2006. So Catherine is the director of the International Development Strategic Coach, where she's cultivated numerous growth opportunities for the past 18 years. She co-authored The Laws of Lifetime Growth, Always Make Your Future Bigger Than Your Past. This is the book we're going to be talking about today with strategic coach founder and president Dan Sullivan, as well as unique ability, Creating the Life You Want. Um, and the Unique Ability 2.0, which is 2015 version with Julia Waller and Shannon Waller. Um, the catalyst for her work comes from this life-changing encounter with indigenous tribes in the rainforests of Borneo, whose way of life was threatened by logging and strip mining. And it moved her, basically, to look at, you know, how we grow in life and what's important. And it showed up for her in ways of entrepreneurship, which was the answer. Um, she went on to complete her MBA and work with organizations that helped entrepreneurs achieve bigger futures. She joined Strategic Coach in 1998, helped company expand and, re- and reach its unique and powerful tools for growth and entrepreneur freedom. Uh, she consults entrepreneurs worldwide to help them grow their visions into reality and is the co-founder, and I actually just went to that uh, website. How do you say the company? Is it knowable? Notable? Countable. Countable, sorry, which provides innovative tech-driven finance solutions to entrepreneurs in emerging economies. She resides in San Francisco, as we said, and uh, we basically uh, has been there for quite some time. And if you want to learn more about Strategic Coach, we'll put a link, but it's www.strategiccoach.com. Well, Catherine, let's get into it. You know, the foreword of the book, you discuss that growth, the mindset, is more important now than it was when the book was first published in 2006. Um, why do you believe that it's more important today And what's changed between the first version and this version? Well, I'll I'll start with the first question first about why I think it's more important today. And I I, I think the reason why it makes sense to focus on growth and, and what we're presenting here in the book, which is a way of taking a look at something that is so 
ingrained in us and so unconscious that we've been actually been doing it since before we were born. If you think about it that way, you started growing in the womb and just continue on as you come out and you grow up from being a baby to a toddler. And there's so much growth experience in those first years when it's just what we do. It's what every human does that we don't really think about growth too much often. I mean, we talk about it occasionally and, you know, people talk about the, the need to, to keep growing in your life, but what that actually means and what we do to keep ourselves growing is something that's so natural that it's sometimes hard to see. And at this stage in, in the world where there are so many things changing and there's so much opportunity on the horizon to take advantage of sort of many crossroads that we're at in terms of making decisions about how we want our future to look. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you see that very much right now in the U.S. I'm a Canadian living in the U.S., so I, I have a different sort of outsider's perspective on what's going on politically here right now. But the way I see it is that there are a lot of opportunities here to present a vision for what things could look like. And, and yet you don't see as much of that as, as you might think. You see a lot of people looking towards the past and thinking about the past as being maybe a better time that they want to recreate rather than thinking about how do we grow into a bigger, better future. So the subtitle of this book is always make your future bigger than your past. And I think this is a time when people can use some direction and and insight into how to actually do that. How do we create a bigger future? And how can each one of us do that in our own lives and learn the practice? And what I'm going to say about this is that it is something that you learn, um, how to make your future bigger. Even though we've all been growing throughout our whole lives, the, the understanding of what we're actually doing, you can do a lot of things unconsciously and you keep doing them. So you do them sometimes, sometimes you don't. And if you don't, but if you don't really understand what it is you're doing, it's hard to do it proactively, um, confidently, and to actually do it to create the results that you want. And that that's true of many things in life. We see that with our entrepreneurs all the time. But with growth right now, we all have such huge opportunity in this world to make our future bigger than our past, whatever that means for us. And so knowing how to do it and do it consciously is really useful. Well, and I think that's the point of the book, but I think you bring up an important point, and that is that, you know, as we're growing, um, you know, the past provides us with, like, the subconscious, this resource area to draw from. You know, we experiment, and sometimes we fail, and we have to get up, and we have to try something different. We kindly finally put the dots together to make it work. And I think that is part of this whole process of growth is this opportunity to draw from this immense reservoir of things that we'd see didn't work, but shifting them in ways to making things work and making our future better. Now, your first law of lifetime growth is creating a bigger future than your past. And you state that this is a factor of one's imagination. And, you know, we looked at the imagined future. That's really what things are about. What advice do you give your coaching clients about creating a better imagined future for themselves than either living in the past or, you know, kind of even staying in the present moment, which we know we need to stay in that moment to create a better future for ourselves, but we still have to dream 
and imagine that future. So what advice do you give people for that? So there, there are a few things. Now, first of all, with entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs who come to us usually are looking at a bigger future. That's why they come to us. They want to have a bigger future. What they aren't always completely clear on is what that looks like for them. And sometimes they have so much opportunity that it's actually difficult to think about that. Or they may be at a kind of what we call a ceiling of complexity where their success has actually brought so much complexity into their life that, you know, relationships are suffering, that their business is suffering, uh, and that it, it seems so complicated to even try to think about how you would move forward that they, they spend all their time really putting out fires and just trying to deal with the present. So one of the things that we do with them and that we advise them to do is to get very clear on what their bigger future looks like. And so really this often comes down to, to getting very focused in on what you love to do. And this is what you can actually use your past. The past can be raw material for figuring out what you want your bigger future to look like. And so we often have people look at what they've already done up until now and just think about all of that as stage one in your life. And, and anybody can do this. You think about everything you've done up till now is stage one, and it's a foundation. And so if you look at everything you've done as raw material, what comes next? And I mean, you can do this on a large scale or on a small scale. You can do this from week to week. We have something called the positive focus where we get people to enumerate their accomplishments. It could be one, three, five, ten accomplishments that they've made. And then just think about why that was an accomplishment, why they're proud of it, what they actually did that was special, and then what would be a next action step to take that even further. And those can be sometimes baby steps, but really what's important there is actually recognizing your progress as you're making it, mm -hmm. and then just thinking about a next step. So that's very actionable. The and other, I, And Sorry. I was going to say to that, when you have big future goals, you know, uh -huh. aspirations, imaginations, uh, you, you have to break them down into smaller little uh, pieces to actually get there. doesn't matter if you're saving for retirement, if you have a big weight loss goal or you have whatever it might be. I'm addressing all of my listeners. Um, those small interim goals are extremely important because it gives you the perspective of trying to reach something that could take you a year, two years, who knows? Some goals are even bigger than that. But um, I do think that's important. And the other, piece, the other piece of it is that time frames are extremely important. And we've, we've, we've realized that the time frame in which you think about your future really matters to how you feel about it. And there, there are some great advantages to thinking in very long time frames often, like 25 years, because you can accomplish such total transformation in that time. So anything can be possible in a long time frame like that. On the other hand, when you're thinking about getting actionable again, shorter time frames are useful as well. And so looking at, say, we like, we like three years often for a major transformation in a business, which is still a big deal. There's a lot to do. You have to change habits and structures. Often you have to change relationships that you have with people. You're building a lot of new things often. Um, so it's sort of the year after the year after next where you have enough time to make some of those major changes, but it's not so far away 
that you can't make a realistic plan to get there. And from there, you can often break that down into what does that mean I need to get done this year to, to be on track for hitting those goals or creating that vision. And then even break that down further to what does that mean I want to, I need to do this quarter, this week, you know, even today, what are the most three most important things I can do today? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, another lesson in the book, it's actually lesson two, is you state that we always make our learning greater than our experience. You then go on to state that every experience we have ever had has two parts. Part one is the things about the experience that worked, and part two is the things that did not work. And knowing that it allows us to bypass or eliminate things that are not working. Can you give us some examples on how we would use this kind of knowledge to transmute aspects of our personality that potentially aren't serving us? Sure. You know, one one great thing to do, and Dan Sullivan has done this with a lot of his past experiences, is to go into an experience where you might have negative energy uh, from the past, something that just bugs you when you think about it. And to sit down and do this exercise, and what this will do is it will diffuse some of that negative energy and allow you to get the learning out of the experience. You just write down what the experience was in in as neutral terms as possible, and then make yourself a list. You can draw a line down the middle of the page, and on one side put what worked, and on the other side put what didn't work. And start with the what worked side, And, and often when we have negativity around an experience, it can be difficult to think about what actually worked. But I want you, if you're doing this exercise, to think hard about that and think because there always are some things that work. Um, even in a frustrating experience, there are some things that went well. I mean, maybe it was. In, uh, there's a story in the book about me where I, where I, it's some people's favorite story, at least the one that they talk to me the most about. But uh, I think people can relate. But I was I was standing in the garage at my house and I had uh, a bunch of bags of food from a big dinner that I'd been at with my family and uh, a microwave oven that I brought back <laughs> that my father was giving back to me that I'd borrowed and a light fixture that he'd given me from my house. And somehow, in some craziness, I thought that I could actually carry all this into my house in one load. And I had actually managed to load it all onto my body, which involved standing on one leg with the microwave balanced on my knee as I <laughs> realized that I still needed to close the trunk of my car. <laughs> and... Uh, as I closed the trunk of my car, I felt this sickening feeling of closing my finger in the lid. I just managed to get the tip of my index finger caught, and I was actually literally stuck standing there with one finger stuck in the trunk of my car, which was now latched closed, and all these things hanging off me. And you know, initially, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was late at night. I was like, oh, my goodness, what, what have I done? That was so stupid. And then I had to laugh, partly just because it was really funny and partly because I realized that this is a learning opportunity. I mean, what am I doing here? And, you know, then it hurt. It physically hurt in that case. But, um, you know, what was working there for me was actually that I, I had done something that, in that, I mean, it was – a little comical and I actually did have to drop the microwave oven and the light fixture because there was no other way to get my key out and, and so that made a mess all over my but it wasn't 
fatal. You know, I thought to myself that this could have been much worse. I, I often do this. I often do too, try to do too much at once. And this time, yes, I'm going to make a mess and I'm going to feel really silly, um, really foolish. But, you know, I could have been, I could have done this while I was driving. I could, I often tried to do multiple things and I don't do that anymore, but, um, but I could have been doing too much at once and, and, you know, gotten into a car accident or many worse things could have happened in that situation. So, you know, in terms of, of what worked there, it, it served to teach me a lesson in a way that was painful enough that I wouldn't forget it. I certainly had a blackened fingernail for several weeks and a big scratch on the side of my car where the microwave caught it on the edge coming down. But, um, but you know, what didn't work was that clearly I wasn't thinking ahead. I wasn't, um, I wasn't focused on doing one thing at a time. And therefore, you know, I was not doing a lot of things as well as I could have been doing them. And this was actually happening throughout my life, I realized. And so I took that lesson and tried to use it as a meditation in a way and a, and a constant reminder to be more conscious. And so the third part of the exercise is actually to look at what you could do differently the next time or in the future based on what worked and what didn't work. And there are always lessons. And you can do this with an experience that's a positive experience as well. If you feel like you've had a win, it's a great exercise to do as well. Any experience you have actually can be put through this filter and produce learning. And that the reason to do it with the experiences where you have strong emotions, particularly um, negative emotions, is that it helps to diffuse that and transform that experience into something that's actually creating good in your life. And so rather than thinking about it and, and getting that, you know, that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, it just tends to kind of disappear. And the lesson is what stays with you. Yeah. And I think the important story you're telling there is the lesson that you got from it. And the fact that you observed it as a lesson, you know, I happened to be with, watching just the other day, Tony Robbins has got his uh, thing out now called I'm Not Your Guru. And yeah. I think when he works with the people, the interesting factor is is that he really is drawing up or pulling up from them these lessons and saying, well, don't resist this. Uh, mm -hmm. Embrace it. And mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is you're saying the same thing. You're talking about embracing this, what could have been a lot worse, but really had some consequences for you about how to look at your life. So you embraced it. You started meditating. You started looking at things, started getting more focused. And I think for my listeners, that's the important takeaway. Look at all of these experiences in life and embrace them. None of them are bad. They are actually learning lessons. And that's a hard one for people to get. That's a really big lesson in itself. Now, your third law is about making our contribution bigger than our reward. And I know you were in Borneo and you did your own work, and, and this is kind of what transformed you to do this. But there's a story in the book about Matt Passmore, and he's this self-described corporate lawyer who is miserable in what he called a soul-destroying soul career. Can you tell us Matt's story and how making our contribution bigger than our reward really can turn into something really wonderful? Yes, and this is this is a great one for anyone who wants to make a transformation and doesn't know how to get there. If you're if you're looking for someone to hand you an opportunity, often, you know, that's that's not really the way the world works, but if you go out there and and try to create value first, you can 
often find your way into much bigger opportunities than you ever imagined were possible. And Matt did that because he was inspired actually by a magazine, I think in a, in a, in a shop when he was still lawyering, he would go down at lunch and look at art magazines, uh, longingly knowing that he wanted to be an artist and he was very interested in this one issue of cabinet magazine that was offering uh, plots of land the size of a magazine in in the middle of the desert. They had bought a big tract of land and they were developing it as as an art project. And so they were offering plots of land to people who you could buy them and you could own a little piece of land. But they, what interested him more was these slightly larger tracts uh, that were available to artists to do art projects. And the the entire piece of land was called Cabinetlandia. And so what he came up with as an idea, being inspired by this, was to create the Cabinetlandia National Library, I believe it was called. Mm-hmm. And this was an art project. He sent in, he did it, he was very serious about it. He did, he drew up plans and elevations for the whole thing. Uh, it was a filing cabinet in a berm, essentially, um, which would house all of the issues of Cabinet Magazine. And if you saw this tract of desert, there's nothing there. You can you can look it up online, Cabinetlandia. Uh, and, and so it's absurd, and it does make you think it's a very interesting piece of art and very tongue-in-cheek and very much in the spirit of Cabinet and what they were trying to do with this project. And he sent it to to the editors in, in Brooklyn who thought he was a little bit insane, this Californian who wanted to go out in the desert and build the Cabinet National Library. But they were they they were tickled by it and they printed it in the magazine and that became you know a piece uh, a piece of actual art in itself being printed up as an idea in the magazine but then he took it a step further about a year later, I think it was, and actually got some friends together, and they went out and they actually built this. And that was when the editors really thought he was crazy. Uh, and they just they had a great time of it. They had a huge adventure <laughs> out in the the mud and the rain and then the harshness of the desert. They played tennis, I think, while they were there. They took pictures, but they built this library, which still stands there today. And people go and visit it, and it actually has uh, it has a few other things. It has a snack bar, so <laughs> the bottom drawer has a pair of boots and uh, and some food and some water, uh, and people can go and read issues of Cabinet Magazine. There's also a mailbox there, which I assume is for receiving the magazine issues. I don't know who actually puts them in the library, but anyways, this the. This led to a whole career as an artist. And what was interesting about it was that that, that was really that was a contribution. That was him wanting to contribute something to this idea that had captured his imagination and creativity. And as he proceeded in his life as an artist, um, he he did a project that with a couple of partners at an at a art a studio called Rebar here in San Francisco that ended up capturing the imagination of a lot of other people. And it was something called Parking Day. And it involved actually creating a public park in a parking spot, uh, which has given rise to a whole movement. You may have seen these parklets. Uh, they're all over the world now. They're, you see just what looks like maybe a slightly temporary park structure on the street in parking spots. And it became a thing because of parking day. Um, this 
notion really caught on. They promoted it. Uh, people were doing it all over the world. There were thousands, and, and there continues to be a parking day every year where people do this. And they, they decided rather than to keep this as a project that they could have consulted on and made money on and gone and advised cities and groups about how to do it, that they would actually do it in more of an open source kind of framework where they would create a manual that would allow people to do it for themselves. And what that did was allow it to grow into this global movement. And so it was through that spirit of contribution, we want to contribute this idea and allow people to take it and do with it what they want and, and develop it in their own way, um, that idea grew much, much larger and became you know, one of the projects that has launched Matt into being an internationally sought-after speaker, uh, artist, and consultant uh, with, a, with a, a vibrant career as an artist. So he was able to completely shift from in the old world of corporate law into living essentially what was his dream in that magazine store one day um, with contribution, the spirit of contribution playing a very large role. Well, it just goes to show you that that story, you don't ever know um, what is going to happen. And in his case, taking the first step forward to go do that um, actually put the wheels in motion for a complete career change, but actually changing the world for, a, for the better um, through his expression of art and being able to do that. Now, you, you have stated that in Law 4, it's always make your performance greater than your applause. You state that improving our performance is where growth happens. Um, and performance comes in many ways. I don't want to just say, hey, it's performance on a stage. Um, it's performance at work, it's performance at home. Um, so for all my listeners, it's, it, don't just kind of pigeonhole this. What advice do you have for the listeners about giving greater performances and how is that going to help them shift their life when they do that? Well, the first thing is... is as you say, to think about what you're doing as a performance. And we, we do this with entrepreneurs. We, we liken them to entertainers so that they can understand that when they're out there doing what they do best and what they love to do, it is a performance. And, and they, we encourage them to actually spend time preparing for that, to see it that way. We actually have them divide their time up so that the performance time is is very protected. We actually call it some, a focus day. And the time that they spend preparing for that is what we call buffer day. Um, and, and you treat it as if you were an entertainer going out there you know, to sing in front of a huge audience of people. Um, but the, the key here about making your performance greater than your applause is to not worry too much about what the audience is going to say, but to focus more on what you know is where you bring the value to the situation. So whatever your performance is, if you understand what it is that you do that creates value for others and what you love about that that drives you to do that, if you think about it from that perspective and then what you can do to grow in that respect, um, how you can do more of that, how you can learn more, focus more on making that performance better and better each time, you will grow and you'll grow in a way that's unique to you. Because what 
each of us have that, that we love to do and do best that creates value for others is completely unique to us. Mm-hmm. And in the way that you, you grow that is, is to focus on it and to not be swayed by what other people want or are asking you for that you know in yourself is not actually the best thing that you could be doing. I mean, if you think about it, Steve Jobs and Apple, Steve Jobs created a lot of things, products that people didn't know that they needed until he created them and showed them what was possible. So inside of each of us is a knowledge of something that is possible that other people don't have and things that they don't see. And if you can focus on bringing that out in your performance, then you will grow yourself and your ability to create more value and you'll get the applause from people because they appreciate it and they're awed and amazed rather than just giving people what they want, which is sort of what we talk about when we're talking about focusing on applause. Right. And, and I think I think that's important because it's really about, you know, not doing the same old thing over and over and over again. You're trying to make a unique performance. You're trying to bring high value um, to your clients or through your service or whatever it is that you might be doing. And to do that, you have to really be ingenious and you have to be innovative and you have to look at new ways to make that happen. And more importantly, new ways to get your client to look at how their perception of the world is so that they can move themselves um, from one point to a new point, which is a better place for them. And I think that's that's probably the most important thing there. Now, you in Law 5, we, you talk about gratitude, and you say always make gratitude greater than your success. You state that gratitude is the greatest guarantee of continual successful interaction with the world over an entire lifetime. Now, there's lots of people today out there, I interview hundreds of authors that talk about the gratitude principles and um, obviously, I know I wake up in the morning and I give gratitude all the time for what I have in my life. And I, and I do a little mantra around gratitude. What are some of the things or ways that you advise your clients, entrepreneurs, about cultivating this attitude of gratitude? Well, uh, you know, one of the things is to extend it beyond just being grateful for people who've done something for you and, you know, expressing thanks essentially, which that's a great thing to do. And, and everybody should, you know, would be better off if they did that more often. We can all do that more often, but, uh, we talk about something called proactive gratitude and this is, this gets into gratitude as appreciation. If you think about appreciation, it has two definitions. One is what we think about as gratitude and saying, thanks. The other is, is the increase in value of something. And that is actually a function of, of proactive gratitude. When you look at the things around you, as I, as I look at all the technology around me, I'm incredibly grateful for what it allows me to do in my life. Um, it allows me to live in this very beautiful place on the top of the mountain and reach out and work with entrepreneurs and other people all over the world, um, which wasn't possible even five or six years ago in the same way that it is now. Um, and just being grateful for everything in your life that makes what you do possible. 
is actually a very useful habit to get into because it helps you see the value in things. And when you can see the value in things, you can see how to increase the value of things. And increasing the value of things is actually what entrepreneurs do. That is the definition of entrepreneurship uh, that Jean-Baptiste Say, a French philosopher from the 18th century, gave that we often use in strategic coaches to to take resources from a lower level of productivity to a higher level of productivity. And in order to really be able to do that, you kind of have to know, you know, what ingredients you have in the pantry. And one way that you get really clear on what potential you have around you is by appreciating people, things, situations. That act of appreciation actually increases the amount of raw material that you have to create with. Most definitely. And I think it's one of those things that, again, as you said, uh, more than just being grateful to somebody to get this greater good from this, if you even flip the coin too, it's uh, one of those things we're talking about giving back. Now, I'm going to end our interview with this. You always make your enjoyment greater than your effort. You state that you should approach everything with a sense of playfulness and that our creativity will blossom. Can you give some examples of people in the book that have embraced this more playful attitude and where the creativity has been abundant and actually been quite successful for them? Yes. Uh, you know, there's an example. Now it may, it may seem that in that, that, it, you know, it's, it's, great to make a lot of things into into a game but shouldn't you be serious some of the time in serious situations and i actually think that quite often in very serious situations that's where enjoyment is even more valuable um and one of the stories in the book is about clifford shearing who is a a world-renowned professor in criminology now but when he was growing up in south africa uh, it was during apartheid, and he was 17 years old, working as a farmhand and working under a farmer who was pretty hard on his workers. He had this trick that he would do where he would tell you he was giving you the weekend off, but he wouldn't really because he would say that you can you can all take the rest of the weekend off as soon as you've done this task. And it was always some huge task that would take the entire weekend, so people really wouldn't get any time off. Um, and, and Clifford, along with many other people on the farm, was kind of fed up with this. And, and because he happened to be white and he was sort of, he was the foreman, even though he was only 17 years old, um, because it was apartheid. And so one, one weekend he got the same same request again. And it was actually, I think, to dredge out a pond. And he was a bit fed up with it, but Rather than fighting back, which he knew would would probably just result in getting him fired, he decided to have a little fun with it. Um, and so what he did was he called on all the workers on the farm and actually went to the farm next door and brought together a whole team of people and had this idea that if they all worked together, they could actually get this work done in a pretty short period of time. And then everybody could just kick back and have a big braai, which is a barbecue in South Africa. And they would actually get to enjoy a weekend and they would actually kind of get to stick it to the farmer, which was a desire that a lot of people had at that point because they were pretty frustrated with this behavior. And so they, they did it. They all came together. They made short work of this task. They had fun doing it because they knew that they were 
doing something that was, you know, a little bit, maybe, maybe a little bit, um, a little bit cheeky, but, uh, but they also were looking forward to having, having fun after doing it. And then they enjoyed just coming together and doing something that made them feel empowered. And, uh, as they were all sitting around having their barbecue, the farmer came out and was very angry and said, how can how can you be doing this? What, what you can't have finished that job by now. You're, you're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to, uh, to have a weekend until you, until you dredge the pond. And, and he said, well, we actually, we did it. Look, we, we dredged your stupid pond. And, and so we're having a barbecue and he was quite angry and actually took this as, you know, a form of, a form of insolence and did actually fire Clifford. But, um, as he was sort of standing on the road with his belongings, he had a big realization about where he wanted to go in life from there and realized that, that standing up to authority in that way, uh, was something that he wanted to keep doing and doing it in that way that involved humor and enjoyment and that brought people together uh, left a really lasting impression on those people. In fact, when he went back decades later to that farm, he was very surprised that this happened. But as he was walking into the farm, people started chanting his nickname and they started gathering around him, chanting his nickname. And that, that experience had actually changed a lot of lives and a lot of people's thinking. And it was because it was enjoyable, because they were it was a demonstration of how having an attitude of fun could take on something that, you know, having that having an attitude of maybe anger or aggression could have turned into something very nasty. Um, and yet making it enjoyable had actually made it into a very successful event mm -hmm. and a very memorable event. And, and I think with, enjoyment and humor. I mean, you see comedians, you get, like John Stewart is a great example of this as someone who brings humor to express things that are very difficult to express in a serious way or, to, or that people will have resistance to if they're expressed in a serious way. And often this is true with tasks that we do too, that if, if we're not enjoying a task, we obviously aren't going to put as much of our energy into it. We aren't going to pay as much attention to things that we don't enjoy. We aren't going to work as hard. We aren't going to um, be as motivated to keep doing them or even to take the lessons out of them. And when you can create enjoyment around something, it actually unleashes all this growth potential in the experience, both for yourself and for others that are involved with you. And it attracts people to it and, and makes them want to be a part of it and makes them often want to do similar things themselves. Well, it just, it, it bodes to people taking time for themselves, period. In other words, taking time for rest, relaxation, rejuvenation, I know is part of the strategic coach process, the way you guys put your entrepreneurs through things. You know, it's a mandatory thing. It isn't all about work. You're actually asking them to take this time for rejuvenation, right? That's one of the principles. It is. Um, however, this enjoyment greater than your effort is not so much about rejuvenation. I just, I want to make this clear. I mean, it, it is important to be rested and rejuvenated before you do, before you do difficult things that we teach that, that 
rest and rejuvenation are not a reward, that they're actually a prerequisite mm -hmm. to being effective. However, in this law, what we're really talking about is work, is when rather than making a huge effort, or feel, this, is, this is for people who feel that if a thing is not hard to do, it's not worth doing. And, and what I'd like to say is that there's a lot of ancient wisdom around that not being true. There, there's a, what we often, um, what a lot of people think of as the laughing Buddha is actually mm -hmm. a, a bodhisattva called Hote, who, and one of the, the, one of the purposes of a bodhisattva comes back to earth, eschews nirvana to, to come back and help the living to become enlightened. And so one of the messages that Hote has for us, that was one of my favorites. And I always think about when I see him and I, I have little statues of him around my house is to remember, remind me of this is that laughter is a really important part of a good practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is uh, Buddhism talks a lot about suffering and how inevitable suffering is and, and that suffering is life, but it's still important to laugh in order to to grow and it's important to enjoy in order to grow and we need to do that not just as a reward not just when we're not working but also try to integrate that into the work that we do because it will help us to grow so if you can find the joy if you can turn something turn a task into a game if you can find a way to engage yourself more by making something enjoyable and and be creative that way you will grow in ways that you couldn't even imagine, uh, as opposed to doing things grudgingly um, or not doing them at all because you don't enjoy them. Well, the, the Buddhist precepts and the virtues that the Buddhism teaches, I'm a, I'm a big studier of that, and I think it's important for my listeners to understand that um, what Catherine is expressing here is that it is important to in, in, integrate that into your life, not this seriousness all the time, because much of our pleasure... Um, comes from our willingness to play and it actually play with things that sometimes are very important in life. So I think it's a great point that you make. And Catherine, I want to thank you for being on Insight Personal Growth and sharing some of your wisdom around uh, your newly revised book um, with Dan Sullivan called The Laws of Lifetime Growth, Always Make Your Future Bigger Than Your Past. It's been a pleasure having you on spending a few minutes with my listeners, uh, letting them understand some of these laws. And for my listeners, uh, this book will there be a link to Amazon for the purchase of this book as well. Um, we'll put a link to the, um, the Strategic Coach website. And Catherine, thank you so much for, for being on with us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Greg. Mm -hmm.